Okay, so we're back in uh, Luke this morning. That was awesome last week, wasn't it? Creation Ministries, Clarence here. Uh, did you enjoy that? I hope so. It was good. And uh, so we're back in Luke's account. So let's just back up, get our bearings here again for a second so that we know where we are in Luke's gospel in chapter 20 here. Let me remind you, we are in the final week of Jesus' ministry leading up to the cross. That's where, that's where we're at. This is just days before he's going to be crucified. The triumphal entry on Palm Sunday has happened, okay? Jesus has already gone into the temple. He's braided his whip. He's chased out the money changers and those who had turned the, the house of prayer into a den of thieves. He's chased them out. Um, Judas' betrayal and the Last Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper are all about to unfold, but we're in those days in between, okay? That early part of the week, on the week that Jesus was crucified. And what we've seen is this, that the, the, the leading men, the chief priests, uh, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of Israel, were seeking to destroy Jesus. Lucas told us this very clearly. They, they wanted to destroy him, but they were unable to do anything up to this point in time because the people were literally hanging on his words. Jesus was in the temple constantly each day. They're teaching uh, the people. And these leaders, these teachers of the law, couldn't do anything to him because... The people were all over him. And besides all that, God's perfect timetable just hadn't quite unfolded yet. You know, men can make their plans, but God's timetable was this. The crucifixion of Jesus had to line up perfectly with the timing of the Passover. And so it was this week before the crucifixion, the week of Passover, and Jerusalem was busting at its seams with worshipers that had come from all over uh, the land, and one of the things that they were doing during this week was this, is they would arrive in Jerusalem, and then they would go, if they were unable, most of them were unable to bring a sacrifice with them, they would go and they would purchase an animal uh, to present at the temple to the Lord and to use during uh, the Passover celebrations. And so they would be purchasing their lambs and all the action would be happening. The city would just be busting, okay? Lambs would be brought from Bethlehem, from the shepherd's fields in Bethlehem, brought to Jerusalem for Passover, raised that season for that particular year. And part of the process of purchasing the lamb and getting ready for Passover was this, that the lamb had to undergo an inspection, it had to be checked out by the priest. It had to be seen as an unblemished lamb to be found worthy of sacrifice. Now, it's kind of interesting because the teachers of the law don't know this. They don't realize this, but Jesus is the lamb of God. He had come to take away the sins of the world. And in those in-between days, between Palm Sunday and all that happened, as he drove those sellers out of the temple and the, the Last Supper with his disciples, he was there in the temple teaching and his opponents were peppering him with questions. And unbeknownst to them, like a priest inspecting a lamb, they were seeking flaws in Jesus and what was happening was they could find none. They could find no flaw in him. They were actually publicly serving uh, to 
bring forth the reality that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was without spot or blemish. And one of the things you learn in, in Luke chapter 20 is this, that it's never a good idea to argue with Jesus. Have you figured that out in your life? <laughs> I don't know about you. I mean, come on, have you come to that conclusion? Arguing with Jesus has never worked out very well for me. You know, arguing with the Lord doesn't work out. I mean, we've got biblical characters to demonstrate this for us, like Jonah, you know, he flung himself off a ship. Or, you know, Habakkuk or Peter. I mean, we've all done this. We've tried to argue with the Lord, and I might just say, how's that working out for you? Maybe you're in one of those arguments right now. So a word of advice. Don't argue with Jesus. You're not going to win. I mean, can we just start there? You're not going to win. So it's important to, to recognize uh, this because Jesus is the one who decides where we're going to spend eternity. We're actually going to see this a little bit here. It's like you can argue with Jesus, but Jesus is actually going to decide for you where you spend eternity. And so a wise move is not to argue with him, but to find out what he wants, what he desires, and what he says, and then allow him or become obedient to him. And so what we see is this in the gospel accounts is that those who thought they knew better than him, argued with him, and they hated him. And Luke 20 tells us three questions that they came to Jesus with. These were questions that they were using because they wanted to destroy him. They were traps. They were well thought out. They were wily, I don't know, decoys designed to ensnare Jesus and show flaws in him, but he's going to escape every single question. And so one by one, he answered their questions with such wisdom that they were left uh, stunned until they had to confess he's spoken well and they could ask no more questions. And so a couple weeks ago, Blake was teaching. We looked at the first two questions that they asked, asked him after he'd cleansed the temple single-handedly, clearing out all those money changers. They first said, by what authority do you do these things? And they didn't like what he had done in the temple because they were the ones making money off of all the business that was going on. I mean, literally, these Pharisees and these scribes and these teachers of the law and the priests were the ones making money in the temple by the business happening there. So they questioned Jesus, by what authority do you do you do these things? And he said, I'll tell you by what authority I did these things, but first answer me this. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they were caught. They were caught, couldn't answer. Because if they admitted John's baptism was from God, then Jesus could say, well, why didn't you participate in what was going on? What was your excuse? If they ad admitted that it wasn't from God, they would upset the people who believed John was a prophet. So they were silenced. Next, they asked him whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. I mean, a perfect trap. Again, a totally perfect trap. If he said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to upset the people of Israel. Uh, if he said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Romans wouldn't be happy. And it's lose-lose for Jesus. And you know the great story of what unfolded. He said this, bring me a denarius. And they brought to him the coin, and he said, whose image is on that coin? And they said, Caesar's. And so he said, then give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. 
And they weren't able to catch him or trap him. And they marveled at his answers as they became silent. And now text, now next in this text, as we uh, move on here, in Luke chapter 20, come the Sadducees. The Sadducees. There are two groups of religious leaders in Jerusalem. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just, just to kind of remember who these folks were, the Pharisees were kind of like your conservative, orthodox kind of believers. And the Sadducees were more like, I don't know, religious liberals, let's call them. Okay? They didn't believe in angels or spirits. They held only to the books of Moses, the five, first five books of our Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't hold to the supernatural side of scripture. They didn't believe in miracles. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are arrested in the days of the early church, uh, it's recounted, Luke tells us that they were arrested because they were preaching the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. And it was the Sadducees who arrested them. So since everyone else had been silenced by Jesus, they thought, let's have a turn. They hadn't learned yet. Don't argue with Jesus. Doesn't go good. So they come with this hypothetical question. They invent a problem to trap him. Let's read this. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take, a, take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So this was a, a law out of the Old Testament. It was called the Levite marriage. And it was the heart of God to ensure that uh, the name of a man lived on and that his inheritance, his inheritance could be passed on to a descendant. And so the law was this. If a man died, his brother was to marry the widowed wife, the widowed sister-in-law, and he was to ensure that the family line was taken care of. So they, they grab this law and they come up with this crazy hypothetical situation. So here comes their setup. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? From the seven, for the seven had her as wife. So, you know, it's like, here's these guys. They don't, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't actually believe in the resurrection, but they figured they can trap Jesus with this hypothetical question. And it's interesting that actually, get this, most of the priests during the time of Jesus were part of the party of the Sadducees. Just think about this. Most of the priests, those who did the bulk of the work in the temple of God, did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and so here's this question. This is coming from those who are probably part of the priestly families. Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection as the Pharisees do, then whose wife is she going to be? I mean, seven were married to her. So let's read on, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. 
For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So this is a good, amazing answer actually from Jesus. Lots of insight for us into resurrection life and what the future holds. Mark's gospel actually recounts that before Jesus gave this answer to the, scri- uh, to the Sadducees, he said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. <laughs> I, I wish Luke would have included that. He didn't, but uh, I, I, I just think this, you know, the problem is they didn't know the scripture nor the power of God. And I think, well, how many of my questions would just be answered? How many of your questions would just be answered if we knew the scriptures better? If we knew the word of God better? They didn't know the scriptures and they set limits on the power of God. That's a bad thing to do, to set limits on the power of the omnipotent God who is the creator of the universe. And so what is the resurrection? What is the resurrection of the dead? Well, I always love the illustration that Paul uses from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Are there, are there any gardeners in the room? Any gardeners? Like to plant flowers, like to plant vegetables. Planting seeds is an amazing thing, right? You stick it in the ground, you're like, this little seed into the ground it goes. You know, just put your finger in there and you just watch, man. You just watch, you water it, and the Lord allows something to happen, and that seed produces something that you're like, wow, I never would have thought something so amazing would come from that simple seed. I was thinking about this, you know, just picture in your head a watermelon seed. Remember when watermelons used to have seeds? Those black little seeds? I don't don't know what the deal is with these new watermelons, but there's something funny going on. Remember? Remember that you used to have to pick through and spit those seeds out? Something funny about these watermelons this, today, but I definitely like not crunching through those seeds anymore. But you take a watermelon seed and you stick it in the ground, and what do you get? Trick question. Watermelons. That's right, you get watermelons. Well, what comes up is a whole plant that looks nothing like that seed, and it grows a flower and the flower is pollinated and it produces a melon and guess what it doesn't look like the seed it produces something from the seed the genetic material is passed on but you get something quite different from that seed you get something quite yummy and delicious a watermelon green on the outside delicious flesh on the inside paul said this in first corinthians that your body is like a seed it's like a seed And the resurrection, participating in the resurrection, will not be a renovation of the old body. It will not be a a reconstruction of this frame, a reconstruction of this old body. A better picture for us is this, like a seed going into the ground, the passing on of information is going to produce something totally amazing and totally different, entirely new. When Jesus was raised from the dead, I mean, he, he looked the same. Some didn't totally recognize him, but he was the, the same person. His body uh, was different and yet the same and yet entirely different all at the same time. 
And one of the difference in the resurrection body, according to Jesus, is that we'll be like angels. It's kind of interesting. We'll not be given in marriage, which is kind of hard for me to imagine. Don't you feel like that? I feel like that. I'm like, well, it's hard for me to imagine not be, you know, in a marriage relationship because I, I love my wife. You know, in this body, in this body, the seed, marriage is very important. Marriage is God's relationship that he has designed for men and women, but in the resurrection, in the resurrection body, like a seed planted in the ground, there is going to be something entirely new and entirely different that springs up. It's not a redo of this life. It's perfection. Something entirely new. And there'll be no more death. There'll be no more marriage. There'll be no more procreation. We'll become like angels. We won't be angels, but Jesus says we'll be like them. Angels have the, the appearance of men, but they're spirit beings. And our existence is going to include a new body, not a renovated body, but a new one. I, I kind of was thinking about it like this. It's like, imagine an old Model A Ford and a new Ford. <laughs> Maybe you don't want a Ford. That's okay. You can talk to the Lord about that. But I mean, cars, four wheels, an engine, drive it down. I mean, a Model A versus today's vehicles with all their technology and everything going on. I'm like, wow, it's kind of like a seed being planted into the ground. And so God is going to raise us from the dead. And he's going to give us an entirely new body, and it is going to be suited for eternity with him. Now, the Sadducees are interesting because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I just think this. Here's men who, who didn't know the scriptures, didn't believe the power of God, and they're trying to rationalize everything in their own hearts and their own minds. And sometimes, you know, we come to the word of God and something like the resurrection, it's like the best we can do is think about some pictures like a seed and something new being born of that seed. We have to admit that eternity holds much we just don't know. You know, I was thinking about our time last week with Creation Ministries and the attempts of men to rationalize everything. They go back to Genesis, to the creation of the earth, and they seek to rationalize everything and to bring God down to their little minds with arguments about the origins of man. And you got pastors and church leaders and people, professors all over who set aside the plain reading of the scripture, set aside something like Genesis 1, 1 to 11, and, and they call it allegory. What are they trying to do? They're trying to rationalize the origins of man. Setting aside one thing changes everything. But the word of God tells us in the beginning, God. And it's the same is true for us when it comes to the resurrection. It can't be all rationalized. I can't bring God down to my level and explain it all the way. All I have to do is just work with what the word of God gives us and by faith, continue to walk with the Lord. I know this, one day he's gonna wipe every tear from our eye. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sin, and we will live in perfection in eternity with the Lord, and it's going to be good. But here's the Sadducees. They're trying to rationalize the resurrection. And to do so, they had to set aside the scripture and the power of God. Look at God can do it. God can do it. God can do it, and he has set eternity in your heart. 
And he's longing for relationship for you, with you. He set eternity in the hearts of men and those who trust in Christ. He will raise them from the dead and they will attain to a resurrection body. And it'll be different. Marriage won't be necessary. Like a seed planted in the ground, something entirely new and different, yet passing on all the information is going to come up out of the ground, so to speak. You know, personally, I like watermelon. I don't know. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, you know, I put a seed in the ground and it produces. I happen to like watermelon. I happen to like it when I put flower seeds in the ground and a beautiful flower comes forth. I happen to like when you can plant a garden and just put seeds in the ground and all, think about all the joy that you receive from just planting plants, seeds in the ground. It's wonderful. That very action tells you about the resurrection body, Paul said. That something much more wonderful is coming than this aging, decaying, balding frame of a body, okay? So Jesus actually spoke here. Did you catch this? He said something interesting that I really like. He said that he spoke about those who are found worthy to participate in the resurrection. Children of the resurrection, sons of the resurrection. He was inferring this, that there are those who will be found worthy to participate in the resurrection unto life, and there will be those who are counted as unworthy. Jesus said to them, have you ever read the book of Moses? I love that. This is kind of lipping off the Sadducees. This is a little smack talk from Jesus, okay? They only held to the book of Moses, have you ever read in the book of Exodus the encounter Moses had with the burning bush when God introduced himself? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What he did not say was, I was the God of. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of your fathers. I was the God of Jacob. He said, I am. <laughs> to be is the Hebrew verb. Jesus was teaching that these men are still alive. God is not the God of dead people. Don't you love that? God is the God of the living. And that's why the word of God tells us that to pass from this life is to enter into the presence of the Lord. He is the God of the living. And that Hebrew word that is translated I am is just simply the name of God that we know. Yahweh. Yahweh. And Jesus would take that name and he would regularly apply it to himself. Like John's gospel tells us many times that Jesus did that. In fact, he tells us seven times where Jesus used that name and he applied it to himself. In, in, the, in the Greek that John's gospel is written in, Jesus used the word ego and me. Ego meaning I and then me meaning I am. Literally, he would say I am. I am the door. He was using the name Yahweh and applying it to himself. I, I thought it very interesting just to think about this when Jesus said, I, I am, because those who have been participating with us on Wednesday night may recognize that the Lord often introduced himself in Isaiah's fifth gospel in this way. I, I am. And that's the way Jesus introduced himself when he made claims about his, himself and his salvation power. Well, the scribes heard these things and they loved it because the Sadducees were getting schooled by Jesus. So verse 39, then some of the scribes answered, 
Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. See, moral of the, moral of the story here, don't argue with Jesus. <laughs> now Jesus tells them three things. First, he's going to challenge them about their belief in the Messiah. They all believe that one day God was going to send the Messiah that the Messiah was going to save them from their troubles. They believed that the Messiah was a, a direct descendant of David, which Jesus was. He was a descendant of David. We know that. The gospel accounts tell us that. What they didn't know was this, that the Messiah was more than just a son of David. Verse 41. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110. You can go home and read Psalm 110 today. And David, Jesus quotes David and David said this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In ancient times, uh, a conquering king would demonstrate his power over those whom he had defeated by making the enemy lie down on the ground and he would put his foot on their neck. Or he would sit in his throne and he would have them lay on the ground and they would literally be his footstool. He would just display that he was their conquering king. I, rem I remember years ago, I was, I was coaching one of Jonah's hockey teams, helping coach, and, and uh, the boys were doing really well, and they came to the bench, and I said to them, this is just me now, this is my personality. I said to them, boys, you got your foot on their neck. Now step down. <laughs> and the other coach said, what the heck? Why would you tell them that? I'm like, hey, it was just an illustration, okay? You've got them. You've got them. <laughs> Actually, this morning as we were worshiping, I got to tell you this. As we were worshiping, we were just singing praises to the Lord. And you just, in your mind's eye, picturing things. I just said to the Lord, I lay down. You can put your foot on my neck. And the Lord said, no, no, come up like a son. <laughs> and as just as we were singing that, I was just so blessed by that because... That's what God does for us. When we willingly submit to him, he makes us sons and daughters. Well, in Psalm 110, God promised that he would put all the enemies of his Lord under his feet. And God promised this to the Messiah, calling him Lord. But Jesus asked this question, how can he be called Lord if he's David's son. Why would David call him Lord if he's David's sons? Look at, look at, fathers don't let their sons do this, okay? Let me talk to the dads here in the room. They get this, okay? Not one dad in this room speaks to his sons like this. Not one. Fathers want respect from their sons. Fathers say this, whoa, you better watch how you speak to me or you're gonna know I'm your father, Right? This is what dads do. They caution their sons to speak properly to them or there will be a problem. That is built right into us. It's built right into us as men and as fathers. But in Psalm 110, it tells us that David will call his son Lord. Why would he call him Lord? 
That goes right against what is built into David's heart. And what Jesus is pointing out is this, is that the Messiah is more than a son of David. The Messiah is also the son of God. The Sadducees didn't know this. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees didn't know this. They just thought of the Messiah as the son of man. And what they didn't know was that he was also son of God. That he was son of man, son of God, God in human flesh. And Matthew's gospel tells us right here that this is when Jesus began to just break out in his teaching and declare woes over the Pharisees. He would say, woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you teachers of the law. To all who would listen, he warned them about the teachers of the law, about their pride, about their greed, about how they love status, how they love the praises of men, how they loved position, how they loved to be treated as top dogs, and they were greedy, Jesus said. They were men who took money from widows and promised to pay for them. They were those who took advantage of the most vulnerable in society. Remember this? They were the moneylenders. They were the ones doing the business in the temple. They would issue out mortgages in their money lending. They would go to that woman who lost her husband and who was a widow, and they would say, we can mortgage this property and we'll help you. And then when she couldn't pay up, they would seize the property. I got to tell you, God can't stand that stuff. God cannot stand that kind of treatment of vulnerable people. His people are to be defenders of the vulnerable church. We live in a culture that's increasingly devaluing the most vulnerable people in our society. The unborn, the elderly, God hates that stuff. He hates it. Look at verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pretense and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Jesus said, hypocrisy this separation of the inner life and the outer life, I'll judge it and it will be condemned. People who live like this, who present themselves as one thing that are different from what they actually are, they'll receive a greater condemnation. Now let's just dip our toe into chapter 21 here this morning. Because as Jesus was saying these things, He was watching people and they were bringing their offerings into the house of God, bringing their their tithes and their gifts to the Lord. And the rich came in and brought their gifts and along came a widow. And I think this is important because she's probably a widow who's been scammed by these scribes, defrauded of her property. As they enacted unjust interest on her, she's a vulnerable woman who's been impoverished after the death of her husband. I mean, we don't know, but let's connect the dots here. Let's connect chapter 20 to 21. Jesus sees a widow after he's just said these things about the scribes. She has nothing. Verse 1. Jesus looked up 
saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. This is a great story, isn't it? It's like, this is a very well-known biblical story. Like people know the story of the widow with her two mites, a widow who gave all she had and to the temple treasury. And, you know, we, we refer to mites as something small, but listen, mites, <laughs> yeah, they're small physically, but let's realize what this woman was doing. She was putting in everything, everything she had to live on. And Jesus was watching. I think, wow. It's interesting, you know, Jesus is watching. Jesus watches what we give. Jesus takes notice. He sees the rich bringing their gifts and he sees the the poor widow giving hers. And Jesus observed how much the gift cost the giver. He He didn't look at the rich who gave large out of their large bank accounts. He took notice of the widow who gave everything she had. It's interesting that Jesus is interested not so much in how much we give, but how much our giving will cost us. Jesus is interested more in not what our giving will buy, but what our giving will cost. How much will it cost? Jesus measures the gift by the cost to the giver. And the widow... Put in everything. Remember those small copper coins that we used to have in our, they used to be copper, then they weren't even copper anymore. Those small little coins that we had, pennies. We had pennies kicking around your house and in the ashtray of your vehicle and in that jar and filling your wallet being totally annoying. Pennies in our culture have become so inconsequential that we've eliminated the physical coin, right? It's like, Well, this woman, what she puts in is literally a fraction of a penny. A fraction of a penny. And in the eye of the world, it was nothing, but for her, it was everything. It was all she had to live on. And Jesus measured the gift. And he says it cost her more than what anyone else put into that offering. I think what a generous, generous woman. When we give church, Jesus is measuring the cost, not the size of the gift. So this morning, let me give you three applications. Number one is this. Don't argue with Jesus. (laughs) Don't argue with Jesus. That is not an argument that you are going to win. You are going to lose. He is the one who decides where you're going to spend eternity and what your experience in the resurrection is going to be like. And Jesus said this. Listen, you can argue with him all you want, but he said this. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except through me. The the Son of God, the Son of Man, claimed to be the exclusive source of eternal life, the exclusive path, the exclusive road to eternal life, and he offers that to you and to I, but we have to come to him. You can argue all you want. He decides. So come to him. The second thing I think is this. Scripture... It's amazing in this whole chapter 20, if we were to back up, but Jesus uses the word of God 
every time he's questioned, to teach about the resurrection, to teach about the nature of the Messiah, to demonstrate and teach about coming judgment throughout this whole passage of Scripture. When Jesus is asked a question, he comes back with the Word of God. He, he might answer with a question, but ultimately he leads it back to the Word of God. He turned to the Scripture. And I want to remind you, don't forget this, church. Human rationale has its limits. It has its limits, but the Word of God and the power of God, limitless. Limitless. And the third thing is this. Be a costly giver. Be a costly giver, not a greedy scribe. What's it costing you to serve the kingdom of God, to honor your King Jesus? Make it hurt. Make it hurt, church.